April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Cell Helmet. As seen on Shark Tank, Cell Helmet makes premium wireless accessories that help keep your devices safe and charged while spending time outdoors. From screen protection, cables, power banks, car and wall chargers, wireless chargers, and car mounts to hold your phone for you while you navigate through the mountains, Cell Helmet has something for everyone. All of the products come with a lifetime warranty, yes, you heard that right, as well as free same-day shipping. Their power banks are perfect for on-the-go situations such as hiking, fishing, and traveling. With three different options, you can find the power you need to charge your phone or micro-USB compatible device up to four times on one charge. Cell Helmet is offering a 40% off discount code to Anchored listeners. Just go to www.cellhelmet.com and enter Anchored at checkout. If you're looking for a fly fishing guide in Sydney, it is almost a guarantee that Justin Duggan is the man you'll be referred to. Justin has brought fly fishing to thousands of anglers across the world through regular radio, TV and magazine appearances, fly casting schools, and one-on-one tuition. And that's without factoring in his guiding career. Justin has been guiding almost seven days a week for close to 20 years and has witnessed more angling skills and errors than we could fit into one episode. I fish with Justin often and thought it was about time to sit him down and pick his brain here on Anchored. I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. In oh. Sydney itself. I know that's a bit boring, isn't it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'd like to have somewhere exotic I was born, you know, but no, just Sydney, Australia. <laughs> okay. And then, like, is there a particular part of Sydney? Because Sydney's a pretty big place. Yeah, I was really lucky. I think one of the things that's amazing about Sydney is how much natural beauty there is in Sydney and how many parts of it are national park. And I grew up pretty much on the national park on the north side of Sydney, on Karingai National Park. And I spent most of my youth in that national park, just catching animals and exploring and photographing. And so it was kind of like I was a country kid at heart, yeah. but I got brought up in the city. And your national parks are really interesting. I know mm. that you can't hunt in them. Yep. And also, I think I recall that I can't even bring my dog there. Does that sound right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, once you start taking dogs into parks, you know, I mean, our wildlife's very different. It's not like, you know, in parts where you're from, I know your dog might chase a bear, but it's probably going to come off second best. Here, if your dog chases a, you know, a small wallaby or any of our wildlife, we don't have a lot of the large carnivores that other places have. Our wildlife's pretty vulnerable to predation. So your dog can do a lot of damage. Yeah. You know, and they do. Wild dogs are a big thing out here. Absolutely. And, and you know, things people don't think about, you know, your dog goes into the national park here and takes a pee against a tree. That might stop a wallaby feeding in an area that it would otherwise have fed in that night and found the little fresh shoots that it loves to eat. And your dog oh. scent scares off that animal from feeding in its area. It has to go and search for food somewhere else. You know, That's so. a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. So you are born in Sydney. You grew up in the park. Were you fishing at that time? Yeah, my, my father had a an interest in fishing, so we used to go on family holidays. Wherever we went, it was usually by the ocean. I think most people tend to holiday near a beach. And 
I have really early memories of dad with his little timber tackle box and some little timber reels. And my dad was a really very, very talented cabinet maker. So not just a carpenter, but someone who dealt in really fine timber work. And anything he could make, he would make out of timber. So, you know, his little tackle box he'd made himself and, and these bamboo rods he'd made and, you know, cane rods, uh, not fly rods, just, just surf fishing and uh, I look back and everything was sort of timber or bamboo and all the bindings would have been absolutely immaculate and perfect and here we go down the beach and catch things and I, I have a, an early memory of my dad catching a numray on the beach and uh, trying to use the knife to flick it, not to kill it but just to, to flick it and it was one of those old metal handle things and <laughs> he got the shock of his life when he touched it because of course it charged right up the the, the electrical charge went up the, but up the what, knife. What is this fish? It's a num, num ray so it's actually like you know electric eels so, you know it's a bit like that. <laughs> I've, I've stood on one I stood on one once when I was um, pushing a, a, a canoe through the water down in Port Hacking and I, I leapt from one side of the canoe to the other it was quite a shock so dad got the shock through the knife I remember that that was uh that was he didn't stab it or anything he just tried to flick it yeah. but as a child seeing those animals come in and seeing the fishing and developing this interest in uh, you know what was on the beach we'd be digging for pippies or you know playing with stuff on the shoreline while dad was fishing and then really excited whatever dad pulled in it wouldn't matter what it was we as kids we'd love it you get it it's great for kids you know and for for me I have great memories of that and that it had me outside doing what all kids should be doing, which is getting into the environment and being part of it. And Dad never really came home with the feet of fish. It wasn't about that. He just loved standing on the beach, you know, and I developed that interest in fishing and I, I remember I was obsessed with it. When did you decide, I'm going to do this for a living? Oh, that oh, that's yeah, – we're leaping a long way forward. But I, um, I had a job that had me working mostly nights and I, I was probably 10 years of working – pretty hard, mostly night times. I had a lot of days free. And so I rekindled my passion for fishing, which I sort of dropped through my teens, didn't do it. And yeah, as I got into my early 20s, I started fishing again. And with all the time I had, I started to get a real, you know, because I'd been so passionate as a kid, I hadn't lost it. And it just came back in a a huge way. So anyhow, to cut a long story short, I was fishing all the time, nonstop for quite a number of years. And there was a gentleman who was uh, running a charter business who was fly fishing on the salt water. He started in the fresh and then moved to the salt. And uh, he used to see me all the time. We'd talk anytime we're on the water. And when he looked to sell the business, he said, I think you'd be really good at this. And I thought, you know what? I'm not doing anything in the day. I love this. I love people. I love the outdoors. I love the wildlife. I, you know, I love fishing. I thought it'd be perfect. And uh, yeah, here I am, 17 years later, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it's all, yeah. so I've been doing it a while. So you did start fishing a little bit in your teens. Yeah, so... I, what did you get into? I'm assuming music. Why don't you, why don't you just give me Yeah, it wasn't time- wine, women and song, I can okay. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, give me your timeline. Give me your timeline. Yeah, okay. So I obviously, what I was mentioning before as a child, you know, I'm talking young, you know, probably five, four, five, dad would be on the beach and maybe up to six or seven, eight uh, family holidays fishing through that. And then as I got older, I I think just life takes over. You do other things. You know, I, I loved going out in the bush and so I really didn't fish much at all from about 13 till probably 21. 
really through that period. Um, I had a real interest in music and, and other pursuits really and, and the wildlife and photographing and stuff like that. So it wasn't until I got into my early 20s that it really hit it hard again. And that sort of coincided also I, I was working as a professional musician so I, and I did that for yeah, so about 10 years but it just gave me that time during the day to, to fish. And so, I mean, obviously I had to sleep in sometimes. So sometimes I'd be fishing pretty late. You know, you get home from gigs at two and three in the morning. You're not getting up at five to go fishing. Yeah. Sometimes I did. Yeah. <laughs> when you're younger, <laughs> stupider. Well, yeah, you know, if you knew a bite was on. And I was – I got into live baiting off the rocks, mm-hmm. you know, and around Sydney you could actually catch – I didn't do it, but I watched – people hook marlin off the rocks. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, incredible. it is. And, you know, big tuna and cobia and all sorts of stuff. Oh, coming. everything. I, I love live betting off the rocks. It's, yeah, yeah, it, yeah <laughs> absolutely. And you learn a lot. But the getting down the rocks, that sort of picaninny sunrise and watching the, the just the little slither of light come up and you're catching your live baits off the rocks and then watching your float float around waiting for something enormous to eat it and the amount of times you'd get completely destroyed by big yellowtail kingfish and stuff. It was addictive, you know. That's worth having two hours sleep and getting up for. Some of the guys take it so seriously they bring their inflatable pools down there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We did it. <laughs> right? And then yeah. they keep their live bait alive. I mean, it's really something else. Little kiddies pool with an aerator in it. And yeah, the, that aerator just kept them alive. And my first kiddies pool got destroyed by an eagle. While I had my back to the live bait, a wedge-tailed eagle came down and grabbed a bait fish out of there. But, of course, its talons went through the bottom, so it emptied the whole thing. Oh, my God. That (laughs) is actually really funny. Does that happen all the time? Yeah, it's the only time it happened to me, but um, I was aware of it from then on. I was always looking up, making sure there was no eagle eyeing off my live baits. That is really incredible. I never would have even thought that that would be an Mm. issue. But you're right. They circle up above us. They, yeah, and they're huge. They're big, big bird. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you don't want to get near those claws, especially the bottom of a plastic kiddies pool. It didn't. (laughs) It only got you know punctured it a tiny bit, but all the water drained out. So I had no live baits for my live bait session. (laughs) That's all it takes. (laughs) Yeah. Anyhow, that's how I I got right into fishing in that respect, and then spinning lures, and then lure fishing. Then became fly fishing because I was introduced to fly fishing by a fellow who worked at the Complete Angler store in Sydney in the city there and I developed a friendship with him because he lived near my house and we did a bit of fishing. He said, you should try fly fishing. And I thought about it and he taught me a bit. I'm not sure Michael was uh, – uh, Michael Hodges, his name was here. I'm not sure he was a, a casting instructor. He was just someone who did a bit of casting, you know. And one day I decided to buy a rod, and uh, a fly rod, and uh, it was actually, I think it was a Loomis rod back then, old GL2, I think, from memory, mm-hmm. and a scientific angler's reel. And I went up the back. And I, the reason I mention those brands is, you know, your first outfit stands out to you, you yeah. know. And uh, the reels were, at the time, cutting edge, you know. They were the best. Yeah. And you look back now <laughs> and you go, God, how did we land anything on those, you know. But they were. They were good. And anyhow, I, uh, I, I went, went to the harbour to try and catch these mackerel tuna, we call mac tuna, that mm-hmm. were right at the back of the harbour. They'd been breaking up the surface. I caught so many of them on lures, but I had never caught one on fly. And I tried and I tried and I remember it was windy and I must have been terrible. I mean, as you are, it's can- <laughs> yeah. fly casting's counterintuitive mm-hmm. if you're not shown how to do it properly. So I remember going up the back of this bay right up and uh, just getting out of the wind and trying to learn to cast. And I think I'd only been there five minutes Stuff me of a bloody Mac tuna didn't grab my fly and take off. No yep. way. <laughs> I was way away from where the schools were, but it must have been up there. And uh, I was into the backing in no time. I I don't remember much because I was so excited, you know, it all becomes a blur. 
But I landed that fish and that was it. That was all over. I've just completely got the fly fishing bug and went from there. But I'll tell you what, that was that was a pretty cool fish to catch on your own on a fly rod first time and saltwater fly. And uh, well, it wasn't big. It was, you know, probably three and a half, four kilos, so eight, eight to nine pounds, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't big, but I'll tell you what, they, they go. They go know? so hard. Yeah. You mentioned that you're a professional musician. Did you go to school for music? What did you go to school for after high school? Or did you? Ooh. Um, I've studied a lot of things after high school, but I didn't go to – I, you know, didn't get a degree or anything. It's what, I was going to do a science degree. Mm-hmm. That was my passion initially, but I just yeah, just didn't work out that way. I actually went into a job at National Parks and Wildlife. I started volunteering there just before I left school because of my interest in wildlife. So I started running animal talks there and I had a real interest in reptiles. Like I was snake mad. Like I just had so many, I had so many reptiles and snakes and all. And look, with I, and the, I don't mean this arrogantly, but for a young kid, I, I pretty much had a photographic memory for anything relating to that. So I had a really, an encyclopedic knowledge for that age, right? I look back and I think, how did I do that? Because I can't do that anymore. I've lost that. But I look back there and I, I knew a lot. And, and you know, obviously I had a passion for talking and speaking. So I used to do talks for them um, that they used to pack out the theatre there in the National Park. I do snake nights, like, you know, demonstrate things with everything from venomous snakes and, and introduce people to, to reptiles and do talks. And I had all my photographs because I was a passionate wildlife photographer. So it was a really good combination. And I'd been there for quite a while volunteering. And then I got offered an opportunity to work there getting paid and it was initially just working on the taking the toll money as you know we used to charge to go into the national park it would be a fee for the day and I'd seat at the gate uh, like they do in so many national parks around the world and uh, that was great money at the time it was unbelievable money I couldn't believe how much they paid to sit on the gate I guess no one would do it for basic wage so it was double and a half what I would have earned working anywhere else at the time really yeah it was great and I got to entertain my passions and interests and we had a bit of family turmoil at the time. I was only 17, I remember, when I got that job and I ended up literally being on the street. I didn't have a house to live in. Yep. And, uh, I, I mean, that's not something, you know, it's, it's long and complicated and it was to do with a, a stepfather and it was just, he was just an ass. and I ended up on the street. I had nowhere to go. And my mum was able to take my brother somewhere but there was not really room. I could have gone there with her but... I, the, one of the rangers at the National Park said, we've got a room at, at our place. Come and, come and stay rent-free. Uh, a guy called John Pastorelli and, and he saved me. That was great. I mean, I've not only saved me because emotionally as a 17-year-old, you know, having nowhere to live was amazing, but also because I got to live in this incredible place in the middle of the National Park. So earlier I said I actually did live in the park. You it was were actually, serious, yeah. Yeah, and I got to stay at this house for quite a long time. Like I think it was... Yeah, year and a half, two years living in the National Park, you know. So I was working there and, uh, wow, I mean, to cut to the chase from there, all my animal interest and so on, I had developed a lot of interest in, in music there as well. John was a drummer and he had a drum kit and he was busy working all day and I had a lot of time to sit on that drum kit and uh, I developed a lot of my chops and passion for music there, um, thanks to John. I, I think he used to come home and get really... He never said it, but I used to get really frustrated. He'd want to jump on the drums and he'd hear me there. I think a few times I saw my record album scattered across my room. Like he just, 
it's not your drum kit, kid, it's mine, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> I don't blame him. It would have been difficult. Of course, 17, 18-year-old, geez, I would have been, uh, I'm sure I was very caught up in myself there. Yeah, you know, unaware, you know. yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. Anyhow, I took my interest in that very seriously and then I was just like, it's like the two train tracks of my life with my passions and interests. I've got this this music interest and then the wildlife and, and just around, just a little later than that, so I developed the fishing as well and they're kind of running on on parallel tracks but, but not meeting each other, you know. And mm-hmm. I got an opportunity, I got a phone call uh, while I was at National Parks and someone said, do you know there's a job at Taronga Zoo working with reptiles? Uh, this is how, okay, yeah. I knew about the zoo, but I didn't mm. know where it came into play or, yeah, or yeah. how it came into play. Well, without going into the boring detail, I was young and I think they were looking for a, a tire kicker, or as we call them, a straight shit kicker <laughs> in the department. They had their heads and, and so on. They weren't looking for, uh, I don't think they were looking for a 40 or 50 year old experienced reptile keeper. They were looking for someone young that they could mold. I mean, this is the, the reptile department Wait, at the time. What do, you, what do you define as a shit kicker? <laughs> um, someone to just do the, the jobs that the, the, the other guy, you know, like, I mean. Uh, where I live, a shit kicker is like a real badass mofo. Oh, well, I'm that too. Oh. Come on. You know that. <laughs> no, okay. in Australia, you get someone to do the really crap jobs. Oh, okay. you know, a shit kicker or yeah, a tire yeah. kicker. And there was nothing about that job that I found crap but I guess people would wonder how someone who was like 17 years of age or yeah. 18 gets that job and it's because I got really lucky that they weren't looking for someone who was incredibly experienced with decades they were looking for someone who had a well I mean I, I was for my age I was very experienced I, I had previously run a reptile I left this bit out but I, I ran a reptile display in North Queensland the minute I left school I got an opportunity it was only for a couple of months to live up in Cairns and, and run a reptile display oh, did you fish while you were up there oh you don't want to know you don't seriously I'm so embarrassed no I didn't because it wasn't in that part it, of the time it, I, I thought about it when I was up there but yeah. no I, I went catching taipans instead okay. oh god I survived it too <laughs> I don't know how uh, looking back, I came so close to dying so many times up there with all the animals I was catching, but I, I had a blast. I, I don't regret it. So I, I did backtrack there, but because I had this experience as a young on the resume, it did look pretty good. And I went through the zoo from all that, like the the reptile side of things, uh, right through. I ended up working with exotic animals, so chimps, orangutans, uh, bears, tigers, everything. I moved from reptiles pretty quickly. So, How long were you there for? Uh, I think close to seven years. Oh, my God. Okay. And so loved I'm, it. I'm getting a timeline. Yeah. Why did you leave it? It is owned by the Zoological Parks Board of New South Wales. So that is a political organisation. Uh, let's just say it's very political okay. and it got more political. So, you know, you can do these great things working in with these amazing animals and every time a new curator came in, they rewrote the rules, they changed things and it just got to the point where I, it, it, the job was being suffocated and meantime on that parallel track with that was running my music. Yeah. And I was working with a band that got signed as a development act to BMG Records. We put out... Just a little independent album, but it was doing really well. And I was getting really frustrated with the politics. I loved my animals. I loved the, you know, some really cool people there. But it was just getting choked with paperwork and all that stuff, I thought. And it was taking a lot of the fun out of it. And I'm not saying it's like that now. Obviously, this is years ago. Yeah. So so what did you do after that? Full-time music. Okay. And then how long did you, did you do that for? Ten years and fished nonstop in between. But not for work, <laughs> just for fun? Uh, no, for work. 
at that stage, I I was getting um, the Sydney music scene was pretty vibrant. You know, we could we could play in venues with quite a lot of people. Um, I was working support bands for some big name bands that here. I mean, they'd be big names here in Australia at the time. But you know, you fill a pub, you get you get a good good wage. Then I was doing. Uh, weddings, cover shows, anything to make money, like playing other people's songs at weddings, corporate events. So I freelanced, basically. Mm. Someone would ring me up and say, we need a drummer for this show. Here's the charts or come and play along. Half the time you didn't even get charts. So I started playing music, pretty much uh, 10 years of it. Playing the music at night and fishing during the day. I was, this is when I developed my, my fishing passion was all those years playing music. Um, when did this guy offer you the job or the company? Oh, it would be at the end of that. Yeah, probably about that 10 years. I just got to get that timeline right. Where are we now? 2018. Yeah, 2001. Okay, so you didn't guide for somebody else first. No. You dove straight into owning your own company? Well, yeah, basically into into, to to buy it. Yeah, I I had a business partner. At the time, you know, being a musician, it's not like I was loaded with cash. And at the time, I had a wonderful friend, or he still is a wonderful friend, who um, I told him, oh, you know, this guy's selling his business and he's offered me the license. You need a license here to guide. You can't yeah. just go and take money to take people fishing. Otherwise, everyone with a boat starts taking money to take people fishing and the whole industry dies. So it's regulated and they had X number of licenses. And uh, in order for me to guide, he'd put the seed in my I hadn't even thought about it. I just love fishing. But he put the seed in my head. I mean, obviously, he was trying to sell the business. He was looking for someone to, to take it. But he said, you'd be really good at this. And I thought... I think I would. I think I'd love to do it. And uh, I couldn't really afford the price he was asking, but my friend said, well, why don't we go in together, you know? So I thought about it and I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. I've because the reality is having a, having a business partner in a one-man-operated f- fishing business doesn't really work financially very well because, you no. know, but um, it, was a, the fo- it was the start. It was great. But I've always wondered about this. When you... When anybody wants to buy a business, obviously they're buying the business brand, they're buying maybe the clientele, they're buying any assets, they're buying, there's a whole lot of things that you're purchasing. But when you are the business, how do you, how do you justify, or when someone else is the business, how do you justify buying it? I mean, you would have obviously purchased the boat and his client list. No, I didn't buy the boat. I didn't, I, I didn't trust the – it was an aluminium boat that um, the particular model of boat he was selling at the time. Was it built in – was it an Australian boat? It was boat? fairly legendary for getting cracks in it because they'd done okay. some pretty radical stuff with the hull. Okay. Once you start bending aluminium into strange angles, yeah. you do ask for trouble, especially running it commercially. Wait, wait, back this up. This is yeah. really interesting to me being from yeah. North America. Yeah. You can buy someone's license? Yeah, so... You have to apply for your own fresh license? No. So what happened, um, I think it was a good decision. The government authorities in charge of the fisheries decided to put a moratorium on the amount of licenses. So you could at the oh. time, you could apply for a license and get one. But what happened was I think there was a push from... I believe at the time, it's a long time ago, I believe there was a push from a lot of owner-operators saying you're giving out too many licences, you're creating so much competition that people are just going out of business because you're spreading everything so thin instead of you know two guides in an area being fully booked. You've now allowed 12 guides to be working this area and none, no one's making a living and it's just it's not a good way to run an industry. You just can't have too many people coming and going and... So they put a moratorium on it and they said, well, in 
you know, New South Wales will allow, I think it was 200 licenses. If you've got a license now, you get it to keep, that's yours. If you want to sell it, you can transfer it. But if someone wants to come in who's new, they have to buy an existing license. Yeah. Well, we do that with rod days on classified water systems, but I didn't realize that it was, it was stretched out to just even captain. Is it a captain's license? Yeah. Well, it's interesting in New South Wales. So New South Wales, one of the states in Australia where I, I live, you need a vessel, like a boat that meets some very strict requirements. I think the most ridiculous requirements I've ever seen, but that's a, that's a whole other talk. But okay, so I need a vessel that meets stringent safety requirements. I need a skipper's ticket, like a captain's license. I need a permit from the fisheries department to allow me to take people fishing in exchange for money. If you want to charge people money to take them fishing, you must have a fisheries license. If you're smart, you need public liability and all that stuff. Did you get any of his customers? Oh, that's a, that's a sore point. Let's not go into I'm that. not a great businessman. Put it this way, I, I trusted him. <laughs> okay, got it. So I started, I started from scratch. I didn't yeah. get any customers. I was promised them and they never came. But that was tough. I got to tell you, this is relevant of interest. I started my business from scratch. I was supposed to start it and hit the ground running with an introduction to all these people and hey, you know, Justin's taken over the business. And uh, I think you know, multiple emails and whatever. I just I never got those names, and and it was really tough. And yeah, instead of hitting the ground running, it took probably five years, six mm-hmm. years to to really sort of establish a name. Like because I was a nobody. Like who's he? Yeah. yeah. This was in 2001? Yeah, around 2001. Let me give some context to people listening. If you come into Australia, and it's, you know specifically New South Wales, and you're in Sydney and you want to book somebody for the day, it's almost a guarantee, especially if you're looking for a fly fishing trip, it is a guarantee that you're going to be directed to Justin Duggan. Are you cool if I start picking your brain about fishing Sydney Harbour? Pick my brains. <laughs> Coming up, Justin and I dive into tricks, tips, and techniques. Again, thank you to Cell Helmet for making this episode possible. Gone are the days of setting your cell phone on airplane mode or turning off your GPS or sat phone between uses in an attempt to conserve battery power. Headlamp accidentally flicked on in your backpack and now it's drained? No problem. If it's charged with a micro USB, you're ready to plug it in and get charged up. Cell Helmet's lightweight power banks easily slip into your pocket or backpack to give you that little bit of extra security, knowing you can still use your phone's apps, maps, flashlight, and camera, and have the power to make a call at the end of the day. With a lifetime warranty, free shipping, and 40% off, it's pretty hard not to go to www.cellhelmet.com and enter code ANCHORED at checkout. Almost 20 years of fishing in mm. Sydney Harbour, professionally as a guide. How many days a week are you out there? I'm on the water. Uh, I try to be on the water five days a week. The yeah. weather doesn't always help me that way, but I try to be. Um, through That's through spring, summer and autumn. Uh, winter, we have a 12-month season. So, I mean, we can fish all year round and there's not a month that doesn't produce fish. There are some months that are better than others. It's funny, in winter, it does slow down, even though the fishing, I think, is some of the best of the year. Because my clientele is sort of a mix of local and and international, I get international people want to go fishing in winter, but I find that in uh, winter, the locals, because the weather's so good for most of the year, the minute it gets a little bit cold, a lot of people think, oh, there's no fish. I don't know what it is. It's bizarre, but some people don't like fishing in winter. But our winter's like... 
nothing. I'm I'm in a t-shirt in winter most of the time by the middle of the day. <laughs> it depends on the day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if right. you're in Victoria, it's a definitely it's definitely a different story. What months are the winter months? Yeah, June. June I, I get the hell out of here during. Yeah, no, you get lost with the seasons because you're just switching around. June, July, August. It slows down. It does not slow down from a fishing sense. What happens, we get a transitional period where, like, at the moment, some of the water, well, certainly only a week and a half ago, the water was nearly 25 degrees Celsius. So, you know, that's into the, I think, the 80s. That's warm. Like, that's for here. And so that's our tropical currents coming down. It's really warm. We chase marlin 23, 24 yeah, is exactly. awesome. And that's pretty warm. Yeah, and there's been still getting marlin out there now, and, and it's dropped a little bit now. But what happens is around late April, May, which is where we are now, the water starts to turn over and, and you get... Uh, you get the cold currents starting to happen. So what you have is a transition period where at the moment we've seen uh, in Sydney the spotted mackerel and even some long-tailed tuna moved down. There's been cobia caught. They're all tropical. Like they're all fish that have come right down the coast from up north and come down the tropical water. But the minute that cold water hits, a lot of stuff turns around and you just get a transition period. And so between the seasons with the currents, you often get a little quiet period. So I normally expect a quiet period Generally around May, although it never ever is a hundred percent. You know, in Sydney's got the the shoulders are very subtle and gentle. It's not dramatic. So I'd say around May we start to get towards that winter. You know, we're in autumn now and it starts to get colder. You'll see a period around May June where it can slow up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I tend to actually I go guiding up north in Weeper and then I, yeah. just for a month and right. then I come back. Let's talk a little bit about the harbour itself. I just assumed that the harbour was going to be an opera house and a lot of traffic and a lot of idiots and sailboats, mm. which it is, and, <laughs> and a lot of ferries. Obviously, there are a lot of ferries. Yeah. I had no idea that there were going to be schools of fish busting up everywhere. Can you just explain the fisheries that the harbour itself has? Yeah, sure. Look, Sydney, Sydney Harbour itself is a very vast waterway, and it's not just a, a, a main central area it, it's got river arms and and it's got areas of national park in it as well where you go right up rivers i mean it's a drowned river valley where they call a rias so, so initially it would have been big valleys there but the, the sea level's risen and filled all that in so you've got all these arms and uh, rivers and bays and beaches and and some spectacular beaches in the mouth of the, the harbor there's so many different environs there i mean you've got reefs in the middle of the harbor sandy areas weed patches, deep holes, like 100 foot deep. Then you've got a lot of areas 30 to 60 feet deep, good current, and a lot of things, man-made structures as well, like channel markers and, and buoys or buoys as people, um, people call them overseas. And they are a wonderful habitat for so many fish. And the entrance of the harbour is a big, deep, cliff-lined entrance. It's spectacular, it these big, is. towering sandstone cliffs. I mean, there's even there are even holes or areas where they used to have the tanks, right? Yeah, Just oh, in case. the guns, the gun emplacements. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's spectacular. You've got these old gun emplacements there to, to protect the harbour from, from uh, the enemy coming in during wartime. And so you're coming through these heads, these big, deep, ocean currents and, and this uh, really nice patches of reef and it's just an invitation. You can imagine a, an outgoing tide there sweeping out bait and you've got predators just out in the, in, you know, basically in the Tasman Sea, out in the, the South Pacific there, like next stop New Zealand. So it's a big waterway and you've mm-hmm. got these predators there 
anytime you've got a river mouth or an estuary flowing out, it's an attraction. It brings in so much activity. So everything from sharks and we've even seen marlin at the entrance of the harbour, you know, all, all sorts of fish come in and it's just so attractive for them because there's so much food. And the harbour's cleaned up a lot since the 70s when it was probably fairly dirty. They've, they've, the government's done a wonderful job of really cleaning up Sydney Harbour. And what I'm talking about, I'm talking about sewerage outfalls and stormwater runoff and, you know, heavy metal contaminants and industry that was up the back of the harbours. You have to meet such strict regulations. The place has cleaned up immeasurably. And in the last 10 to 15 years, commercial, or 15 years ago, commercial fishing was removed from the harbour. And that's just, I mean, the prawns in there and the, the, the life that came in after they removed commercial fishing. And they removed commercial fishing because they, there had been some pollutants up the back thanks to Union Carbide back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to gloss over the harbour and say everything's perfect. Um, there has been some issues. And that pollution is not in the water. It was in the sediment. But unfortunately, things like parakeet worms and, and prawns and so on that enter that part of the food chain, then it biomagnifies up the food chain. And they did find some dioxin levels in the prawns and some species of fish up the back of the harbour. And of course, that means they're not going to be able to do commercial fishing. And to be honest, um, I don't begrudge anyone a living in commercial fishing, but my God, it's just turned the place into a, just a paradise for, for so many species. I, I've fished a lot of places in the world, and I'm not saying this because I guide there, I promise you. I think at times it's some of the best fishing I've seen. It's just, it's, for a city, it's incredible. I, I would argue it's the best urban fishery in the world. Um, so species-wise... To give you an idea, a lot of the fish I chase are pelagic fish. So we're talking about um, yellowtail kingfish are probably the number one fish, and we can talk more about them later, but they're, they're a member of the amberjack family, so um, the genus is Seriola. So very closely related to the Californian yellowtail, which you see as well, which is Seriola dorsalis, ours is Seriola landi. But they are an absolutely spectacular fighting fish, but they school up on the surface a lot and herd up these schools of anchovies and bait, especially... In the warmer months, we we get small tuners move in. Frigate mackerel, uh, the bonitos, the mac tuna, uh, they all move into the harbour. And once the tuners move in, they encircle the bait. So our Australian salmon, which is a type of sea perch, the early explorers called them Australian salmon. I love that you guys call them Australian salmon. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. It's not (laughs) funny, but it's just a name that transferred from the early explorers just because they had dots on their back. They're an unbelievable fighting fish. Incredible. They leap, they jump, they take flies with, you know, gay abandon. They, They just love them. So they're a great fish. So you've got these Australian salmon and the kingfish will often feed together. These kingfish are not to be confused with the king mackerel or anything like that. These are an amberjack family fish with a bright yellow tail. And they actually look really peaceful, but they're just really, really big bullies. They're savage savage fish. (laughs) But um, we'll talk more about them later. But uh, once the tuners move in, they encircle the anchovy schools. So the the kingfish will push the bait around and herd it up. But once you get those tuna moving in and encircling the bait, they create the bait balls, or meatballs as people call them. We get these balls of bait. And I remember when Simon was fishing, he did come at a a prime time when the bait balls happened and he arrived at the boat ramp with uh, Peter Morse. Uh, You know, Peter Morse was fishing as well, a a famous, uh, you know, one of the world's great fly fishermen. And so I had two incredible anglers coming on the boat. Now, Morsey's a good mate of mine and you got Simon Goresworth and you just know it's going to be a good day Mm because damn, those guys can cast. Yeah. But for him to turn up at the ramp straight off of the plane 
and we hand him a cup of, cu- cup of coffee and we got a bacon and egg roll from him uh, from the cafe there at the ramp. I don't think he'd got halfway through the bacon and egg roll and he certainly hadn't finished his coffee and he had a rod thrust in his hand and there was a bait ball underneath a moored catamaran. And there was a, a metre-long kingfish swimming through that along with every species you can think of and he was just on, I think he was on first cast, second cast, third cast. And it went like that all day. It didn't matter what bay we went to, where we went. At one stage, we were underneath the Prime Minister's residence opposite the Opera House and a bait ball, oh, the size, oh, gosh, it was a pretty reasonable bait ball. It was, uh, it was probably about 15 feet across. And they try to shelter under the boat. If you stop the boat near them and then they, the, the bait tries to get under the boat, it feels a bit safer, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the kingfish were hitting it that hard. I had these anchovies spraying in the air and landing in the boat. And Morsi's, you know, double hookups with Morsi and Simon and and bait spraying into the boat. My camera was getting splashed. The kingfish were hitting that hard. I was trying to lean over to get a photo and I kept having to wipe water off the lens of the camera. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it was just one of those. (laughs) You're right near the Opera House. We're underneath the Prime Minister's residence, which is just opposite. You've got the spectacular Harbour Bridge there. You've got the Sydney Opera House. And you've got literally thousands of fish all within a, a kilometre of that. Just, it's a David Attenborough scene. And I, look, <laughs> people will think I'm embellishing this, and and maybe I am to to a degree. But look, to be honest, it was it was a it was a champagne day, and we see that a lot. But Simon if, said it was like nothing he'd ever seen. Yeah, I mean, we fished together. You and I fished yeah, together. Yeah. Charles and I fished the, the harbour. We've had great days, and yeah. we've had days where we've seen nothing. And that's fishing, isn't it? So that's all part of it. You do have those days, and um, when it's on, you you can go every day, and you will find fish. You know, I mean, at the moment, it's been extremely tough just these last few weeks and I have said to my guy today look you know it's going to be tough we had a great day (laughs) but that's just fishing you know um it 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 can be really patchy no matter where I've been to some of the you know I spent three weeks in Florida and barely got out of the house you know that's just what happens with weather and fishing so let's talk tips and tricks because that's something that you're passionate about and you have got a lot of them where Mm. do you want to start do you want to start in techniques casting (laughs) (laughs) well boat etiquette where do you want to start techniques are fresh actually I guess if we're going to talk about this, I, I need to be really clear that whilst I give a lot of tips and I, I'm really meticulous, like I'm, yeah, I, I, little things count for me as a fishing guide. I have, I just don't want to sound like that's that important to me when I'm out there. And it's important to help people catch fish. But as a fishing guide, I'm not one of those guys who's going to scream at people. And, you know, like as a fishing guide, I expect every person to get on my boat to generally not be particularly good and all I'm interested in is seeing them catch fish but more importantly just improve their techniques and so on so if someone steps on my boat it's just a real beginner or or has fished for 20 years but is nowhere near as good as they think mm. I don't care I expect that I'm going to give you an opportunity to call out some tips and tricks here I get to you on the boat I'm your client I'm no Simon Gosworth <laughs> um, I do I want to have a floating line or a sinking line and why if we're going after, if we're chasing bait balls all day. Yep. Um, that's a fairly easy answer, easy answer for me. If we are chasing pelagic fish, generally most of the time, 99% of the time, I'm going to be doing fairly fast retrieves. So if the fish are on the surface, which is most of what I do, which is fish crashing the top and pushing bait around, we're going to want to be near the top most of the time. If you bring an intermediate line, then if we throw a surf candy on that, or a clouser on that, or a popper, or a surface, even a crease fly on that, 
it's going to work. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, you've got to throw surface flies like poppers and crease flies on a floating line. That's fine if you're chasing bass or you're doing slow retrieves with the paws. If you try to strip really fast with most poppers and crease flies or surface flies with a floating line, (laughs) they jump out of the water, they don't dig in. And you don't get the pop and bang that you really want. Like I like to, you know, I like to create noise, splash for cash. You know, I want, I want, especially poppers, which we use a lot on yellowtail kingfish. Uh, I want to hear that blue, blue, and that bloop. comes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that comes from an intermediate line, a lot more than a floating line. If you're using slow and subtle retrieves, which we have to do with, sometimes we have this tiny, tiny bait, and we have the king, kingfish and salmon slurping very delicately on it. We do long, slow retrieves. If you use a floating line, because the water surface is all disturbed usually from these huge schools, you throw a floating line in, do a slow retrieve, on the pause you'll see big dimples and ripples form in the in the floating line. And you can actually get quite a bit of slack just from the surface being all rippled from the waves and so on with the floating line. You do miss quite a lot of hookups that way. Yeah. And intermediate, because it's under the surface film, creates tension there that tends to help you with hookup as well. But the only problem is if you're using a full intermediate line, it's very hard to represent the cast. When you're dealing with quick, fast-moving fish, you want to be able to pick up long lengths of line and recast. For instance, I I see a a fish crash the surface. There's a whole school. I see a bunch out at 11 o'clock. I throw a cast out. The fish doesn't eat and I see a much better patch of fish just suddenly develop just a little bit to the right or left or a bit further out. I need to pick that line up and represent. It's really hard with a full intermediate if it's just gone under a little bit. So what I recommend is why not have a floating line with an intermediate sink tip and you've got the best of both worlds. So I can do quick recasts and representations with a sink tip. So that's what I tend to use is, is if I was recommending one line, an intermediate sink tip for most fishing. Obviously, if we need to sink deep, then we're going to go a full sink. Mm-hmm. And if we need to do some particular specialised stuff, then a floater. But a sink tip is going to get you out of trouble every time. Okay. How do I know if I want to fish a teeny tiny little fly or if I want to fish a big streamer pattern? E- easy for me here in Sydney. If the predators are moving fast and creating lots of splash, it's usually because the bait fish is big. Ah. They have to chase that fish fast to get it because big bait moves fast. It doesn't sit there. So then in order to grab it, there's so much momentum in the predator that usually when they hit them, there's a big crash and lots of splash. And you can see if the predator's moving fast, generally the bait's bigger. If they're slurping and just gulping or rolling, it's usually small bait because fish are only going to use the minimal energy to eat that bait fish. There's no point running from one end of a football field to the other to eat a French fry. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to just go there slowly and use very minimal energy because the food they're obtaining is only small. Of course, if there's a Big Mac at the end of the football field, it might be worth the run. In other words, it might be worth moving fast to get something bigger. You've got to conserve energy. It, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Okay, so then we get in the boat and I'm going to stand on the bow of the boat. Mm. I strip out all of my fly line onto the bow. <laughs> right. Okay. Why? Because <laughs> say that we're on a school of fish. Okay. Let's talk some errors that you see beginners do with that fly line that they've got stripped out on the bow? Oh, well, the first thing is stripping all your fly line out. <laughs> They're almost never going to – if you have to cast a full fly line most oh, of the time, I haven't, driven, I haven't driven the boat properly, but no, okay. So oh, they, you're taking me literal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the mickey here. But, so, so, but no, that's actually – it just brings up a really valid point. So the first tip I'd say with re- relation to how much line you strip out, you've got to have a comfortable region you want to fish, your comfortable cast. If you have more line out on the deck of the boat or in your stripping basket that or bucket 
I think we call them VLMD, vertical line management device. If you've got more line sitting there than you're casting every four or five casts, you are going to develop twist in that line. Okay, the act of casting creates twist. We had a talk about this with a guy today. He cast a reasonably good line, and then when the line came tight on the reel on one of the casts, he pulled another five foot of line off and then stripped in again. And I said, oh, that's a pretty long cast. I just leave, leave it at that. That's fine for now. And then he did another good cast and he stripped a bit more out. So what he's doing is getting to a point where he's not casting all his lines. So every fifth cast or so, the twist develops in that back line. That's where you get tangles form. So it's a really good idea every four or so casts, five casts, to make sure that that line clears onto the reel. Yeah. Yeah. So only cast what you got. If you need more and the fish are further, you're going to have to quickly strip some offshore. But anyhow, that's my first tip on that. And stop kicking your line with your feet. Oh, God, I hate that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. If you kick the line with your feet, you roll it. The other thing is the deck of most boats have a little bit of texture on them so you don't slip. Mm -hmm. It's not good for the lines. No kidding. The other thing is people who pick their line up and move it. That's a classic. What do you mean? Oh, you've stripped in the line. Uh, The boat's moving forward to another school of fish and the line is not somewhere that the angler likes so they reach down with their hand and pick it up and move it across so what they've actually just done is almost certainly pulled the bottom loops up through the top loops and created the perfect snafu it's a cluster <laughs> cluster you know what yeah. waiting to happen another good point too if you're pulling your line off the reel at the start of the day, you hop on the boat and you just told me you've just pulled all your line off. What did you do to that line? You stripped it off the deck and you've laid it down on the deck. So the top coil, the top of the fly line, the head of the fly line is on the bottom and the running line, the back of the line is on the top. Mm-hmm. So you need to reorganize that so it's the correct way around so you're ready to go. So a vertical line management device is a good thing for just holding your line with a little bit of water in the bottom and strip it the right way around or even on the deck of the boat's fine. A lot of the fishing we do is fast, so those vertical line management devices don't work so well if the boat, if you're switching sides, you know, the fish are on one side of the boat one minute, then the next they're over the other side, but mm-hmm. they're great for storing line as you travel. What do you use, like a laundry hamper or? I have some, the vertical tubes. Um, you can get the, the fold-out ones, but yeah, those uh, those little fold-out laundry hampers are actually a really good thing because yeah, they fold flat do. and they store away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't put one of those big, vertical line management devices anywhere in a boat that it's not in the way if you're not using it. So Mm -hmm. yes, those laundry hampers are the next best thing. I don't tend to use them a lot. They tend to suit slower pace fishing like casting at structure and moving along a shoreline where you're just continuously casting off the same side of the boat. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't trained Sydney fish to stay in, you know, that sort of nine o'clock to (laughs) 11 o'clock. If you can just come up there somewhere between, you know, so. Yeah, they Um, drive me crazy. I need to, I just crouch low and strip my line back into the bow of the boat. Yep, it's fine. And if you know what you do, look, stripping line, there's another tip. People strip line one way and I don't, and normally that's towards them and straight on top of their feet. Learn to strip at 90 degrees off to the left Learn to change hands if you need to, to strip with your right hand so you can pull it out to the right. I strip uh, the fly line with the roly-poly under the arm strip. If I need to go to the right instead of the left, I'm, I put the rod under my left hand and I'll pull off to the right with my right hand. I also think a lot of people strip downwards too, which puts the line straight under their feet, or into their body, which restricts how far you can strip. Strip down the side of your body and throw the line behind you. There's all sorts of things. It depends where the wind's blowing. You watch a good angler, they don't get many 
tangles or problems on a boat because they know how to address that issue by being able to lay the line where it counts. I don't need to watch what's happening with the fly. I just need to feel it. So I'm stripping. I'm looking where my line's going because I care what happens once I hook the fish. I don't want it tangled around something. My boat has very little to get tangled on as it should, but yeah, that's another tip too. You know, like I mean, there's hundreds of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Pack tape and put them on your cleats. Yeah, if you've got cleats, they minor push down, so minor flush. But yeah, yeah pack tape and um, absolutely, and and just look where you're going to strip the line. Just remember too, if you're reversing, there's three casts that that I talk about with fishing on my boat that will catch you most fish. Casting forward, well, <laughs> then letting line go on your back cast. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to turn around and put the fly through the guide's head when he's in the middle of the boat. We don't cast through the inside of the boat with our sort of fishing because it's just too quick. You just That's how you hook people. So you have to cast behind you as well. There's two casts. The other one we talk about is the oval cast. But the, the reason I mention those two casts is if you cast out one side of the boat at 9 o'clock, say, and then suddenly you know a big crash of bait happens behind me at 2 o'clock, I can lay the cast there, but what does happen is when you strip the line one way for one side of the boat and you turn around and cast the other, it puts a cross hitch in your – you actually cross your line over. Mm-hmm. So it can become a problem. We're talking about line management. Yeah. Be really aware of that, that when you cross sides on the boat, that's a really easy way to get a tangle. Now, you can't really avoid that when you're casting uh, at the time in the heat of the moment, but one thing I'm conscious of is once I've done that, if we're then moving the boat to another school, I'll re – shuffle my line to make sure that it's ready to go out the other if that makes sense to make to go out the appropriate side which is normally hopefully the forward cast with a good captain if he can if he can do it well talk me through if you don't mind basic 101 errors that you see with your clients so let's just start from the beginning the guy gets on your boat he puts out too much line we've already addressed yep. that okay now you're getting up on some a school of fish mm-hmm. he's ready yes everyone's in place okay and the wind's blowing in the right direction yep if there's such a thing what happens next? What okay. does he do from start to finish? Okay, so the first thing is uh, you, to understand that you need to know what the captain's told the angler. So the first thing is to understand that the only way that you can get to those fish is the fish are going to be in front of the boat. You're heading towards the school of fish. Uh, a good captain is going to then take the forward momentum out of the boat and swing the boat. If it's a right-hand cast, I will swing the boat off to the starboard side, to the right-hand side. I've now got a an angler who's able to present the fly somewhere around 9, 10 or 11 o'clock off the bow and present that fly to the fish. There's no longer any forward movement in the boat, which means when they retrieve, they're retrieving the fly towards the boat from a static, from a boat that's not moving forward. If you have an angler as you approach the fish and it happens all the time and it's really frustrating as a captain that you're approaching the school and you say to people I'll tell you when to cast but they get so excited they start casting forward a couple of things if you cast at 12 o'clock it puts a fly through the back of my head I don't like that too much (laughs) the other thing is if you're casting forward off a boat that's moving forward what you're doing is you're then presenting the fly so that the next time you strip, you've got no strip, you've got no retrieve, the boat's going forward. (laughs) Okay, so be really conscious as an angler what the boat is going to do to your retrieve. If you cast a little early and the boat's still got forward momentum, strip faster. Sometimes you have to be quick, you don't have an entire choice, but as a captain, you should always be turning the boat and angle. So as an angler, you need to be patient because casting early has just robbed you of the, the best opportunity. You're better to have the patience. You know, it's a fast game, but if you're too fast, you've just robbed yourself of a shot. You've got to pull it all back in or represent it. And so very important, never, ever cast until the boat has turned or lost its momentum. 
Okay, so you've stopped, and mm-hmm. the angler's now about to make his cast. Yes. Or her cast. What does she do? I, either. doesn't matter. Fast game's a good game. So the first thing I'd say, the cast there, less swish, more fish. That's a, Rod Harrison, uh, <laughs> I read that in an article years ago. I've never forgotten. What a great saying. The fly cannot stay in the – you've got to get it to the fish quickly. It's a really common thing that people spend far too much time casting, false casting, okay? The reason people false cast too much is generally because they don't create enough line speed. So we know that hauling is going to create line speed, but one of the most common things is they don't move the rod hand fast enough. If you move a rod hand at 60 kilometres an hour and hit a stop, then the fly line's going to move at 60 k's an hour give or take friction. If you move the rod at 500 kilometres an hour, you're going to get A, a lot faster presentation, but also you create mass, which means you can slip more line on your forward or back cast. One of the most common things I see is too slow a rod hand and not feeding line on the back and forward cast. Mm. We're just trying to get enough line out to get the job done. In most cases, it's to get the head of the fly line out. If it takes you three or four goes, like back cast, to do that, it's just, it's a frustratingly slow game. Oh, and the Be- fish go back The down. fish are gone. They're too fast. It's not a trout sitting there in one spot coming up and down. It's, <laughs> it, these fish move like so fast. And I see a lot of windows of opportunity lost. If you can practice fast right hand, not even, I, <laughs> any good caster, um, and especially, you know, you can do this no problem at all. I know I've seen you cut. You're a wonderful caster. I, if I said to you, right hand only, slip, 20 feet into your back cast, you could do it because you can create line speed, hit a stop, and you can slip 20 feet of line without a haul into your back cast. You don't have to haul to be a good caster, right? The haul's even better, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm saying is if you can create enough line speed with the, with your – I say right hand, I mean rod hand. If you can create enough line speed with your rod hand, you can shoot a hell of a lot of line on your first pickup. So when that angler approaches the fish, shoot into that cast, come forward, shoot into that cast, come back, shoot into that cast, and then come forward. At the most, I actually would prefer it was just shoot on the back cast and let it go. But mm-hmm. let's say for mere mortals, two back cast <laughs> is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Line speed. So now – They've got the line speed. They l- are getting ready to land the fly. Yes. What do you want to see them do with their line, with their hauling hand, or with their absolute? Other hand? Great, great point. Oh, this is a killer. This is a killer. One of the, the most guides I talk to. This is one of the, the the big frustrations. Let's say they did haul, and the the fly sings out there and lands in the school of fish. Where's the fly line? If it's in their left hand, they've got control to actually stop that fly line just before it lands, which will kick the fly over, and they can strip almost immediately. So I want to see the fly line stay in your left hand, and I want the fly to kick over, and I want that fly to move the minute it touches the water. The reason is a lot of times the fish eats as soon as the fly touches, like literally, bang. If you don't have the fly line in your hand, you've missed your shot, okay? So you've missed your shot at that fish. The other thing is... If you don't control the fly line through the cast, what happens is often the fly will hit the water and the front of the head will hit the water and then line keeps feeding out after the front of the fly line has hit the water. I've seen it all the time and line just slips out. You now have about four or five strips worth of slack you have to pull out before that fly moves. That could be the difference between having the fly moving in front of the school or having it actually move once the fish have moved past it. And it's the same with sight casting. On I've seen it on the flats, same thing. People just cast out a fish. They're 15 foot in front of it, but they let the line go. Mm-hmm. By the time the fly is moving, the fish has kept Jeez. going right. Past. Yeah, letting the fly line go out of your non-casting hand is 
is also really, really bad thing to do when you're casting at structure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I accidentally overgunned the cast. It's going too far. I can stop, stop it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I can also purposely stop it to land it exactly where I want it to go. I watch the fly in the air and I now have my left hand to just stop the line. I think Peter Hayes calls it the triple haul. It's the third, you know, you've got your, your forward haul, your back haul, and then as the fly line goes out, if you pinch the, the line. Oh, that's genius. Yeah, okay. it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I've got to give Hazy credit for that. Yeah. I, well, I think so. I think it was him. Because then that little pinch, now your fly line kicks over. Yeah. I want to see a leader land straight. Totally. Okay, so now your client does that. Yep. And we're going to strip. What is the biggest pet peeve you have when you watch somebody strip their fly line back in a retrieve? Oh, well, that's like choosing your favorite child, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. i got a few there. But one of the, one of the classics... Two, they relate to each other. Having the rod tip above the water. Oh, my God, yeah. Every, dist- every centimetre of, lo- uh, of distance between the rod tip and the water is generally slack. Mm-hmm. So if you have the rod tip up in the air, you watch. You can actually see on a fast strip, you see the fly line kick left, right, left, right. You get this kinking slack in the line because the rod tip's above the water. That slack has to be pulled out before the fish is hooked. The other thing is that slack has to be pulled out before the fly moves. So you see guys stripping like working or girls stripping like working up a sweat, but they've got two, three foot of slack there. So they're (laughs) doing this massive strip and the fly's barely moving. Bury the rod tip in the water. They don't melt. I promise I don't know any brand of rod that melts when you stick it in the damn water. <laughs> okay. Actually, I was talking to Josh Hutchins, uh, Aussie fly fisher, the other day. He said he sometimes feels like he's going mad because he's saying, tip in the water. Oh, tip in the water. I stand beside my clients and I, or when I used to guide, and I just smack the rod <laughs> over and over again all day long. I just smack the rod back in the water. Absolutely. So, yeah, we share the same that it's, it's basic physically. You know, the, the key to great casting, right? We talk about one of the keys in a good caster is tension, constant tension. The key to good retrieves and good hookups is tension. Now, relating to the slack of the rod being above the water, is also this terrible habit have people have of turning the tip of the rod at an angle to the fly line. Mm. I see it all the time. All I saw it today, yep. all the time. So if, if you've cast out and you now start, I, this is probably the thing I hate the most, is working the fly with the rod tip. I see that, sweeping the rod to the right to make an action in the fly. I see people do it with poppers a lot. Oh. Yeah. Grab a set of scales and tie some 20-pound leader on your, onto the set of scales and get a friend to – look at that set of scales, and turn the rod from pointing straight at the scales to just off to one side. Let's make it 45 degrees. And then pull on that set of scales. And if you're lucky, on an eight-weight rod, you might pull 20 grams of pressure on the other end. Now point the rod straight at that set of scales. I mean, dead straight. And just do a strip. And I reckon you'll pull about three kilos of pressure. That's going to drive a hook into a hard mouth. Turning the rod at an angle is equivalent of what we call in saltwater game a trout strike, where you use the rod to set the hook, okay, the rod tip. The reason we lift on trout is so we don't break, you know, light tippets, we don't pull tiny hooks and straighten them, or we don't pull them out of soft mouths. You're using the rod to set the hook, but definitely, definitely, definitely with saltwater fish pointing all the time straight at it. And now I know we're talking about that client on the front, but if that was a sinking line and we'd sunk down, I saw it today. We missed four fish today because we had a sinking line down 45 degrees. We had a big school of kingfish and the angler was stripping the fly up or the fly line up with the rod tip not pointing straight down the fly line. And it happened, it was, it was hard. You can only repeat yourself so many times you start to feel really bad, but, you know, (laughs) 
bury the right. If I've got the fly line vertically down, which is very rare, but if I end up because of the drift of the boat that the fly line is straight under the boat, then my fly rod is under the boat pointing straight down at the fly, like mm-hmm. no angle at all. And it's a bit awkward, but the rod is pointing straight down the line because I know when that fish grabs that hook's going straight in. But if you have the rod pointing straight out and the fly line down 90 degrees from that, you're putting like 10 grams of pressure on the fly. Like the, the, you're not going to bury a barb into the fish. So there, that's... Well, well, we'll come back into hook sets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anything else on the strip that drives you crazy? What about any? What about hands? Do you want to see your hands come back together when you're stripping? I know... Um, there's, look, there's a few things there. I, I think if you want a faster strip... One thing that frustrates me is, is the rod in the gut. You know, putting the rod right in against the gut and trying to do a fast strip. Push your hand out as far as it'll go. Extend your arm as far as good. Now you've just gained nearly two and a half feet or however long your arms are. If you're a freak like me, it's like six feet. What? No, <laughs> no, I'm not there. Um, and now you've just gained extra strip, okay? Um, I also, a nice little habit I get into with certain species is to, um, I strip over my front two fingers, uh, thumb on top. If you're stripping fast with your thumb not on top of the rod, the rod will bounce. That's the other thing about burying the tip in the water. The tip will stop. If it's in the water, the rod won't bounce as much. But if you see people strip fast with their thumb off the top of the rod, the rod tip bounces mm-hmm. and that throws slack. Also, it's hard to get a hook set. But I run the line over my front two fingers with my thumb on top and if I can, I'll strip and then lock against the cork. So strip, lock, strip, lock, strip, lock, just in case I get a hit in between strips. Mm-hmm. We've all had that fish <clears throat> all the time. grab the fly on the paws and it's pulled the line through our hands. Mm-hmm. It's not a great way to hook up. So that's the other thing with the strip. I mean, there's so much in it. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many different styles of strip. But if you want to be good at stripping flies fast, which anyone can strip flies slowly, that's not – there's no – I mean, there's little nuances, but it's not hard. I can teach – you know, I can teach a monkey to do that. If you want to strip fast, and I mean fast – you need to practice. You, you can't practice in the park because there's no water tension. No. Are you always stripping as fast as possible? No, not at all. But it's so easy to strip slow and do that. But stripping fast um, is to, to become really fast, you need to really practice. You've got to do a lot of it. And sometimes it's the only thing that will get the fish. Other times it doesn't really matter. And certainly when they're on those bait balls and so on that – you know, the strip is less important. Well, but when would you strip slow in a bait ball? Oh, gosh, you know, you watch those bait balls get hit. A fish comes through those at, you know, lightning speed and smashes a bait. And he also knocks about 20 of them with his tail. Mm-hmm. So there's all these stunned fish just slowly falling mm-hmm. under school. Some of the, you know, some of the best fish are caught under the school. The, the really smart ones, the lazy ones, are just waiting for the easy kill, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so... Sometimes you just cast out as long as your lead is straight, just let it sink. They hook themselves, you know, they grab it like it's a dying bait fish. Yeah, actually, I've hooked up a bit like that. Mm. Uh, just, you know, you're doing something else, not paying attention, and oh, all of a sudden you're hooked up. Okay, so now the fish takes the fly. Yes. And what do you want your angler to do? Don't lift the rod when you feel a bite. <laughs> that is a strip set to me. A strip set is not, I've got a bite, strip, now lift. You have to know the fish is on before you lift. The number of times you get a bite that doesn't result in a hookup is quite a lot, especially with things like we had a lot of bonito lately. They've got hard mouths with little fine teeth and little pig teeth and they're buried into bone. And you could get four or five hits before you actually get one of those little buggers to, you know, to get the hook into them. If you lift it on the first, you, know, you, th- you got the bite, you stripped it, and now you lifted, the fish isn't on, and now you've got the rod in the air, you've got a bunch of slack, 
and you've got another three Benito trying to eat the fly. Oh, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's it's really hard not to lift it. Even, look, I, I'm, I, it's certainly not like I'm perfect. Uh, I, I've, I've done it too. We think the fish is on. But really you want the line to be tight. So depending what they've hooked, you have to be aware. If you've hooked just hooked a you know 15-kilo long-tailed tuna, as soon as that hooks in, that fish is out of there. So that's where you strip and slip. As soon as that hooks, that line's tight and you know that fish is on, you have to lighten your left hand. You have to lighten your left hand. You can't hang onto the line hard. You'll snap them off. Mm-hmm. But there's two things here. So the strip and slip is for the fast runners. You know, like you do that with a tarp. You know, you hook a tarp on, it goes off like a frog in a sock. You know, you, you need to you need to let that thing run. So you, you want to strip and slip. But for a lot of the fish here we get that, that you know, react badly to being hooked, but they don't, they don't take hundreds of metres of line. You want to be ready to put that line straight back in your hand and start bending, like stripping into the into the fish and getting a bend in the rod. One of the most common things I see is they get fish on, lift the rod, and then stalemate. Just sit there. The fish comes at you. If it swims at you, then you've got a strip line. But so often I see people hook the fish, lift the rod, and the line's in their left hand, the rod's in their right hand, and the fish is coming at them. So you, now you have a problem because you, now you're going to get slack. And sometimes I really think that if you can really load up straight away by stri- once the fish is on, if it's not powering off, really, really strip hard to get the bend in the rod. I want the rod to bend to the – we're using 12 to 20-pound tippet. I want that rod to bend almost to the cork. And then I know I've really got the hook in. It's very common for people to go really light just after hooking up. You mm. lose so many fish that way because the hook hasn't quite gone in past the barb and then – you've missed an opportunity to really load up the rod and get get some meat into it. I think I would say 90% of anglers I see don't load up on saltwater fish anywhere near as hard as they should. And that's not little tiny strips. That's where your stripping becomes really important. If you've got the fish on and it's not not running too hard and it's it's there, strip long strips to get the, you know, get all the slack out and get that rod loaded up as fast as possible. Okay. So now you're hooked up. Yep. And you pass the barb. Yes. And the fish wants to go under the boat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's the best way to handle that? A little rule that helps people. It's not, I always say to people, follow the fish with the rod tip. Try and, you know, make the rod tip follow the fish. So if the fish is going under the boat, you've got to go around the front and, you know, don't stand on one side of the boat with a fish on the other side. You've got to follow that fish around. We're trying to get load on the fish. Um, look, there's so many variables here, so it's really hard to talk about this in, in absolutes, but definitely follow the fish with the rod tip. We see that a lot, you know, especially the little tuners, you, you hook them up and they're out the other side in a heartbeat. Just be really aware of which direction the fish is going and, and follow it. So I would go, I would get the angler to go around the front. If on the back, go around the back, stay well wide of the motor. Mm. <laughs> or if you have to bury the rod under the right deep, get the rod tip below the propeller. So your line's not going to go around the prop. You just have to watch out that it doesn't melt on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. We know these rod tips melt when you <laughs> stick them in the damn water. Um, that's right. But, yeah, it's all about keeping load on the fish. We, look, we the tuners and so on, you can just let them run. You've you got to make sure, obviously, that, that your drags aren't going to overrun. If the fish goes onto the reel, fight it on the reel. If it doesn't go on the reel, be prepared to just work it really fast with those strips and just keep the load in the rod, you know. You'll know if a fish needs to go on the reel. Let's say the fish runs under the boat and then takes off the other side and you're clearing line. I know, I'm pretty sure Morsi coined this phrase, I could be wrong, um, but he talked about the burly bra technique. 
lift and separate. The left hand, if that line's dancing off the deck and that fish is line burning, the left hand creates a circle and moves as far out to, this is if I'm a right hand caster, uh, right hand fish fighting, left hand as far out to the left as you can, right hand then moves and, and you lift the rod up and you turn, if you're a right hand winder, you're going to turn that reel handle, even if you're left hand actually, turn the reel upwards. And now the handle is not in a place that the line can get caught round. And I lock the butt of the rod up against my wrist. Now I've got no way of the line going around the back of the handle. Have you ever had that happen? I've seen so many times no. where the fly line goes around the back of the reel and up around the butt. And you've it's lost the fish. happened to me before. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it happens to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So we lift and separate the burly bra technique. You know, I've never worn a burly bra, but apparently they lift and separate. <laughs> so disgusting. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's a great technique. It's a great technique, you know, and uh, then the other thing is just to be prepared. If the fish eases up and it's not taking line, you've got to keep pressure on. You've got to get that line back in your hand and start stripping straight away. Big strips. like get, you know, just get the load on the fish. If you had to give me the one thing that you see consistently on your boat, that you'd really like to see stop with anglers or, you know, with your clients, what would that be? Oh, it's got to come down to casting. Is there is there a guide anywhere in the world that, that is going <laughs> to tell you that the casting is up to standard? Look, and it's what I said, you don't have these massive expectations of everyone stepping on the boat being great. But the casting generally, yeah, I, I think far few – Far too few people understand fly casting the way they should and it's not complex. It's actually nowhere near as hard but you need to practice and you need to be shown the right way. So if I was to give one piece of casting advice, you're not throwing the fly. You cannot throw a fly. What you are doing is you are shaping a loop from the tip of the rod and that loop is carrying that fly to the target. So when I see a fish and I want to get the fly to that fish – I think of the rod tip and the path that's taking and I fire that loop off the tip in the direction I want it to go and I think of it like an arrow off the tip of the rod and I'm unrolling that arrow. Think of it like an arrow on a piece of string if you like, but I'm aiming that loop and that arrow to where I want it to unfurl with it. So that's the key piece of advice. You are not throwing the fly. Far too many people try and chuck a fly, throw it. You cannot throw a fly. You have to shape a loop. I think that's fantastic advice. This is the first time I've ever said this on a podcast that I have got to go and get a baby to bed. Usually it's like, (laughs) oh, hey, Colby's got to go get a drink or someone's got to catch a flight. But this time I've got to go put a baby to bed. Um, Is there anything in particular that you wanted to add or ask me? Um, Oh, there's so much. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, we could talk all day. I think at the end of it all, I, I think fly fishing is about fun. And I know having fished with you plenty of times, how much fun do we have? Oh my God, it's ridiculous. Do you care whether you catch heaps of fish that day or not? No. We, we, I think we had one day that wasn't that good and we were like, I had the best day. We had the best time, you oh, know? I, I don't recall a single day that hasn't been fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and it's because I, even we do it for a living. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. I don't have these high ideas of myself. I know you, you don't like, we, it's just, out there to fish and I guess with all the intensity of everything I've talked about there comes the reality that I could go and fish for five days and catch nothing and have five of the best days of my life so yeah like it's great to take your fishing seriously to a point but it's also good to remember why we're doing it and that concludes this episode of Anchored thank you so much for listening please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes